All right, welcome to the 50-minute hour. Uh, my name is Corey. Uh, today, uh, we have a new guest, um, Ryan. Uh, and we are also joined by our regulars, Calvin and Seraphim. Um, let's start off going around. What are we all drinking today, boys? Hello, I'm Ryan. And today, I'm having Golden Monkey, the Belgian-style Trapel. Very nice. I am uh, having the black coffee. It's very good. Uh, I'm having a, uh, a very young man's drink, but a very good drink. Uh, simple rum and coke. Yeah, and I'm having the same thing. Dark rum and coke. Are we going to do the headlines? Yeah, yeah, let's go ahead. Shoot some headlines. Let's, let's shoot some headlines. So the first headline that we've got is this I thought you'd be interested in. A priest just resigned after incorrectly performing thousands of baptisms. For about 20 years, he said, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, instead of I baptize you. And it was deemed that all of his baptisms, thousands of them over the past 20 years, were deemed invalid, and he resigned. What are your thoughts on I've seen. I've been seeing this go around in in the various on, weird online groups I frequent. Um, I'll say that there's a lot of stuff I could say on this that would be a bit too esoteric and not in the way I normally use that term. Um, I'm. I'm. There, there's a lot of easy criticisms here that I don't want to make, and I want to avoid that. At the same time, I guess the what I want to say is that yeah, there's a way to look at this where it's like the Catholic Church being legalistic and blah blah blah. My my gripe is more so that. It, it it's very much uh, what's the phrase Jesus uses for the Pharisees um, uh, pinching a gnat and, and swallowing a camel? What you know what I'm talking about? No, I think that is no, wait, well. In either case, um, it's when he's talking about the Pharisees and the way they treat the law uh, that things that are very superficial and minor. And then and there's this there's that archetype there, but there's also something to me that's like and yet the Catholic Church isn't normally like that at all. So I can't help but read this in a very Machiavellian political lens, which is to say that the Catholic Church has done all sorts of weird stuff with baptism rituals and all sorts of crap like that, you know, especially since Vatican II, right? So there's another easy criticism there. And then suddenly it becomes so preoccupied with this. I mean, my point is like, there's all sorts of weird sub-political layers beneath this that we don't know about. And if you're going to make a critique for the Catholic Church being legalistic here, I, I wouldn't make it if only because it's very much not so otherwise. So there's there's something particular. Did that come out of the Vatican that it wasn't valid or were just people saying that? Um, I think it was the bishop. And he basically, they annulled all the baptisms really? for the past year because he had been saying we rather than I. It's funny because... Um, and, and the idea, by the way, is that the priest, when he says I, is not talking about himself. He's talking about the office of the priesthood, which is representing Christ. So when he says we, it's almost as if he's implying by the powers of Christ and myself, which is where the theological era would seep in. Um, it's funny that they would be so legalistic about that. Of course, I mean, I'm not Catholic, but I remember when I was taking a canon law class in seminary, the prime example they used for the contradictions within canon law was about the different ways that church and canons over the centuries handled baptism 
of different heretics, of people of different faiths, and showing that there is so much inconsistency, yes. A, among the centuries, yes. but B, amongst just different in, Christians in, in the same time. between contemporary church Exactly, fathers. yeah. Yes. <laughs> about how they would handle baptisms and conversions. And to this day, places like the Russian church, places like Rokor, will rebaptize even Catholics, whereas places like the Antiochians, and the Greeks, they won't. So the fact that this is being held in such a legalistic manner over something so trivial, when baptism itself is probably the most inconsistent uh, sacraments or mystery uh, uh, across the board is very funny because no one has any agreement on how baptism is supposed to be done other than the fact that it's supposed to be transparent. The, the Catholic Church at least has more semblance of a monovocity, a univocity of uh, the meaning uh, in the sense where, you know, patriarchs all kind of disagree with each other. But in the sense that they're just like, oh, we all agree from the Vatican, from the Pope, that this isn't going to be considered legitimate, right? Um, At least they, they, I I do want to say something else, which is that um, there is a more nuanced discussion here regarding philosophy of magic in general, which is um, to what degree is magic efficacious by words alone or words with the wrong intent or the right intent with the wrong words? I don't want to speak too much on this because it's a very complex topic and it can, I think it actually goes both ways depending on the situation. Um, I guess when I say both, I should say all four ways. <laughs> even even if you have the wrong words and the wrong intention, magic will happen sometimes. But, um, and actually this kind of relates to our topic today, I think with drugs and which we'll get into that later or Pharmacon again. But uh, in, in either case, there's, I just say there's much more under the surface here than appears. Well, what seems strange to me about this particularly, and now that we should go on about baptisms, but... Um, and I'm no priest, I'm no bishop, and I'm no Catholic, so I must speak with a lot of humility here. But it seems to me that if they were baptized and they are now receiving other sacraments within the faith, that there should at least be, and this is what I just would think would be the natural response, a certain amount of economia to say, well, okay, maybe this exact wording wasn't right, but they're already participating within the mysteries and the sacraments of the church. We'll use some economia and say, you know, obviously they're part of the body of Christ now, let's go on. The fact that they would actually go so far as to annul those baptisms. I mean, I'm wondering what the repercussions well, are. Are they, are they making so them redo So they're using the Augustinian distinction here where they say they're not valid, which means that the graces can still potentially be conferred, but they should nonetheless be baptized, rebaptized anyway. As sort of like an insurance, I guess. I mean, the, the, that, that, that language is sort of foreign to the Orthodox view, right? Um, even though some Orthodox, I think OCA have conditional baptisms. But in, in either case, if, if from an Orthodox point of view, if you want like a good book on this, I would recommend We Confess One Baptism, which if you want to take the conservative traditional sort of Kyprianite view uh, of the Orthodox view of baptisms, which is the one Mount Athos and Rokor practice, uh, this is probably the book that gives the best argument for that. I think once you start to veer away from that, you immediately go into open ecclesiology, which, which you know, in a certain sense, that's fine, but it's not going to be what will line up immediately with a lot of these later patristics, especially um, ch- the writings of church fathers and saints that were influenced by Latin theology, like the Russians and the Greeks for different reasons, starting around the 15th, 16th centuries. It is funny, um, and, and we should stop. <laughs> we should move on. It's but, a fun topic. It's yeah, hard it's to funny. stop. It is, it, is, it is very interesting to me, the, the things that certain Catholics will be very, very lenient on. And <laughs> weirdly, this is something they're very conservative and very like rigid on. It's, yeah. it's, we can have the clown very... mask with the cheese heads and whatever. Right, yeah, but... <laughs> yeah. But, oh, you say we instead of I, and now everything's... And everyone loses their minds. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right. The next headline we've got, this I think you actually shared, is from The Independent. Economists are advising that the moon should be privatized to help wipe out poverty on Earth. Can yeah. you give your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think this is what Marx calls um, primitive desire or, or primitive economics or primitive... Um, Something uses the word primitive, but I forget. In, in either case, I think it's interesting and, and it's just like this sort of... Um, sort of defense mechanism of capitalism and industrialism, which is always like trying to search for more exterior, more alien resources. And there's there's something I think kind of Lovecraftian about this notion, which is that um, no matter how in, how stable this world seems and, and the lack of stability that seems to intrude on it, there's like this inverse hope that we can take exterior resources and somehow make it better. And it just like keeps expanding. So like, so like Marx's whole thing is like, capitalism isn't sustainable or industrialism isn't sustainable because um, the amount of division between possession and, and desire of uh, commodities has to be uh, come to a tilt, a tipping point. But the scary notion here that I don't think Marx really accounts for is when you get into weird states, like the idea of um, material resources in outer space or material resources that go beyond materiality, like magical resources or infinite resources of religion, or even things like what Orwell writes about with total manipulation of psychology um, and words, right? And th these are things that kind of go beyond the purview of what Marx was looking at. And what gets kind of scary there is like, well, maybe actually there is a way to make a sort of zombie like capitalism that is dead, but nonetheless still keeps going. At least, you know, alive enough. You know, you, at some point you get into like matrix territory where like everyone but Elon Musk are in these little vats who are having their, you know, seminal essence drained from to, to power some sort of like a nice peach, a, a pastry dish for Elon Musk to eat every morning. You know, something like that. I'm saying like, you, you can run with this notion and it gets very terrifying if you think about it too long. Uh, did anyone else have anything to say? Or On the one hand, it's the only land that hasn't been stolen already, as far as I know. Uh, on the other, it should be a communal resource for everybody. Now, how do we divide that? I have no freaking clue. There is um, a, a Catholic bishop of the moon. Really? Um, because Florida, when they did the NASA project with the moon you know, stuff, whatever... Now, if he does a baptism on the moon, is it valid? Yes. Okay. Well, as, right. as long <laughs> as long as long as it's a, it's a priest under his jurisdiction. All right. Yeah. And on the final headline, I think we we talked about this a little bit about a month ago, but I thought it would tie in very nicely into the rest of this podcast. But this is from TheEconomist.com. Sensible policy on psychedelic drugs is growing more common as they show tremendous potential in treating certain mental health disorders. Thoughts on that? And of course, you'll probably want to share some thoughts. Um, well, we had talked about this last podcast and I think Ryan and I had some dismissive words on that, which I already said last or the podcast before. So I'll go ahead and let Ryan say some things on this. So psychedelics, like all drugs, should be legal and perhaps to some degree regulated. Uh, I would imagine a large part of the fear of psychedelics when it comes to industry and when it comes to government regulation is there's not much profit to be had. And I do think that the regulations are slowly loosening, uh, definitely not fast enough. I imagine that we will live in a world at some point where there is some degree of this drug is safe and therefore we can do it. At least that's the world that I really hope to live in. I believe the best way to get there is through ballot initiatives, and that is generally how we've been seeing it done. Um, thankfully, some parts of Canada are actually doing a very, very hands-off approach where some 
producers are releasing, I believe it's psilocybin in chocolate bar form, and it is still ostensibly illegal. Uh, the government just neglects to do anything about it because they know public opinion on the matter. Um, I would prefer to have some degree of regulation of it, but I, I think the march is going there. So my, my immediate response, Ryan, just to push back a little, not in, in per se that the pharmacon is bad, right? I'm not, I don't, I'm not someone who thinks drugs are intrinsically evil or anything, obviously, right? And if you listen to other podcasts, you would know this. My fear is that one, the industrial society that manages and bureaucratizes medicine. This is why it's like, I'm not per se even against most things that uh, would be uh, immediately prescribed in, in modern legal medicine. But the way it's used to externalize responsibility from society to the individual, and that as Aldous Huxley talks about in his books and nonfiction works and like Brave New World Revisited and then you know fiction like uh, Brave New World, is that it's potential for society to end up using pharmacon and psychedelics in particular to create a state of passive euphoria or complacency where it makes people immune to any actual revolution or change. Um, or preventing the Kali Yuga, the end of the world, or the end of the cycle, rather, following out through its true final form. That's my fear with the, and I shouldn't say legalization merely of psychedelics, but the so-called legalization of any pharmacon. I would have to absolutely agree, yes. So when I say regulation, I mean in the strictest sense of, of purity and knowledge of the materials. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to actual administration and recommendations for how to use it, uh, the government and Honestly, any organized group should probably stay very far away from that. Um, when I say organized, I mean any large secular body uh, that has a particular aim because these things really should be used with some form of guidance, obviously, if you... So I, I, I was very fortunate to where I encountered these substances um, and I used them relatively in isolation and I discovered that I could safely take them um, and suffer not too much consequences in terms of psychic damage or whatnot. Um, there have been multiple instances in my life where I had uh, an abundance of materials and I would share them with an individual and say like, hey, listen, I'm going on a trip. I'll be back in two weeks. Here's, you know, uh, approximately enough of this material to let you go to the other side and back a few times. And I came back and one of my friends, um, she was my roommate at the time, had not left the house in a month and had not left the basement in two weeks and actually had somehow managed to leave her room for three days because she became lost in time because she did get lost in a, a, a hedonic realm. She was stuck in a series of time loops and I didn't give her any instructions. I just gave her this tool and said, um, enjoy yourself. And she's an individual who is prone to, when she finds something she likes, she's very good at hitting that dopamine button, as many people would like to say, and she did. And I came back to uh, a fractured person um, that I had to help reassemble over a period of time. Mm -hmm. And if there was a group uh, like the government who said, you should use this under these circumstances, and in particular, the best thing to do would be to watch this broadcast while you're on insert substance here, that is the easiest way to make propaganda effective. That I and, and there's also a faculty and nuance here, which is that it doesn't even necessarily require direct involvement from government or powers that be or propaganda as such. But even individuals within a society will reproduce the propaganda unconsciously. Um, and I, I think that's, that's the danger and it's very hard to navigate. There's a sense in which in the Kali Yuga, you have to be extra Apollonian with sparks of Dionysian insight. And this is kind of what Nietzsche says about sort of dancing and giving birth to the dancing star. 
Um, there, there's a sense in which we have to be extra careful, uh, but at the same time, I don't want to go fully Apollonian. There's a there's a certain level of sobriety upon the modern man that takes a, a heroic level that I don't think traditional societies necessitate it. Um, there's also an aspect here of the idea of the one who gives the pharmacon. In Plato's myth in the Phaedrus, this is Thoth, the, the god of writing and knowledge, who in the literal Greek says, gives his pharmacon, writing, uh, to the king of Egypt. Um, and this is the archetype of the shaman, the archetype of the one who brings down the divine. So the responsibility, and this is a sense of the archetype of Frankenstein as well, and the, the responsibility one has as a shaman or as one who's a psychonaut who is enabling others. It's an it's a intense responsibility because you're sort, you're sort of them, you're giving them a key to a door that once open, you can't really close. And the thing with Frankenstein is that he, he acts from a sense of wonder and I think deep down a sense of kindness and genuine curiosity and love. But what he ends up creating uh, can sometimes be very dangerous uh, for the person in, involved and for the person involved in the lives of the person involved. Um, yeah, that leads directly to a question I have. Uh, on the last podcast where we had our 50-minute uh, hour superstar Jonathan on, uh, he said it sort of in passing, which I thought was very interesting. I wish we had time. I wish he was here for this, but uh, he said, uh, wish we had time to at least go into. He, he said even marijuana shouldn't be legalized. But And he is someone who has experienced different you know drugs yes. of different sorts. So he's not some sort of like conservative, like, oh, you yeah, know. He's talked about his drug life right. extensively on here. Right. So, and thinking about this, I think about, uh, you know, like how, at least in the past- not, not, not to say, by the way, I don't think you would want that we should also side with this extreme Puritan idea of exactly. preventing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I basically, what I'm, what I'm advocating, and I think you would also advocate, Seraphim, is this idea of um, Junger's Anarch or Confucius's The King Who Rules Without Rule by pure virtuous force of your tay, which is that we, we don't illegalize, but we also don't legalize. And the Anarch- has a rule onto himself. And you could bring Sterner into this if you want, that the unique one sees laws as things that work to his advantage or disadvantage. Yeah, and so, and that's very interesting. And so I, I, would, I would wonder with this, if you take, say, like the Oracle of Delphi, or if you take a lot of different sort of mm -hmm. prophetic uh, figures who, who seem to have at least been somewhat influenced, and you can see this across cultures, by some sort of uh, psychedelic or, you know, drug of some sort, pharmacon of some sort, um, and it leads them to a certain place and maybe to a certain knowledge. Is it that these things should be around, but should only be around to a certain class of people who are ready to receive them, who understand them, whether shamans, prophets, or, or some sort? And maybe for the, for the everyman who is not initiated, so to speak, Maybe this shouldn't be available. Maybe it, this shouldn't be on it, the street. It's so hard to say because in the Kali Yuga, everything is inversed. And there's a sense in which the Oracle, going by Guénon's understanding, right? The, the Oracle of Delphi was right at the cusp of the shift into modernity, which probably sounds weird to a lot of people, but for Guénon, and I agree with him, the shift to modernity really begins when poetry gives way to philosophy and what we would nowadays term as natural science. So that would have just been philosophy back then. Um, and the, the role of someone like the Oracle, the, the modern mistake is to look at the Oracle's influences on things like the, the fumes or the drugs or shamans. And it's not that the revelations they had were from drugs. The revelations they had were from ritual. And they were through the ritual activity that occurred in everyday life, even for a peasant. So in a certain sense, the peasant himself 
was already involved in Pharmacon. What the drugs or the ayahuasca or the fumes that were, you know, maybe, right? I'm not even sure if I buy this, but maybe influencing the Oracle, okay? Um, these were things that were used to give a certain speed boost, maybe uh, uh, eyeglasses, maybe, to a specific aspect of the spiritual realm. Um, they were not needed for a shaman to get to the spiritual realm. But there is a sense, even in, in modern uh, South America, where these tribes of shamanism still exist, they'll constantly have tobacco water, chewing on tobacco water. And why? It's because the tobacco water makes it so that they're already sustained connection from a, a ancient traditional aspects of initiation that allows them to see into the spirit realm. Having the tobacco water constantly in them, which is only getting them so high to a degree, Right is what allows them to maintain a very vivid connection to that. And when they actually take the ayahuasca or they take this uh, poison from the, uh, the frogs, that's giving them a very sharp, clear image into a very specific aspect that they need in order to do the spiritual surgery required of their position. But the modern mistake is to think that that access is purely on the pharmacon in and of itself, right? And so I want to make that careful distinction. So then going into the realm of modernity, in, into Kali Yuga, all this gets inverse because now there's a sense of urgency where a person may very well be stuck constantly in darkness unless they take some sort of crazy Dionysian trip into the underworld via LSD or hallucinogenics or ayahuasca, even some crazy, you know, sorority white girl going down to, you know, South America to do some, some weird like con artist ayahuasca might have the revelation that gets her out of that trap. Right. So it's very difficult for me to prescribe anything in that regard in the, in the, this, this uh, system we exist in today. Sorry, Ryan, I'll, I'll let you say something. No, you're absolutely good. I unfortunately have too much to say to fit in 30 minutes at this point. The, the idea of policing access um, is one that I have incredible difficulty with. And it comes down to several things. One, there are certain people who obviously shouldn't have access um, to a button with unlimited pleasure. Otherwise, they would end up in a Brave New World style or a VAT where they just end up hitting something and you disappear entirely. Um, that's w one of the beneficial things about LSD and mushrooms in particular. Uh, to get super persnickety about this, what happens is there's a certain receptor that LSD and mushrooms hit and due to it being active for a very long period of time during your trip, you lose activity at these receptors. So from a physical sense, uh, the drug just stops working. You can try to take one LSD one day and then two the next day and it doesn't hit as hard. You take three the day following and it doesn't work at all. And I find that extremely fortunate because it allows um, there to be some repair mechanism both physically but also spiritually because if someone was constantly doing LSD every single day, um, we would lose a lot of great people um, to the realm of the mystic to the other plane, they would be gone. And some people would just be there to have a good time. Some people would be there uh, doing honest investigations, but we would never get to have them uh, on our side bringing that information back with us. Uh, on the flip side of that, there's DMT, where when you take DMT, there is some type of tolerance that builds immediately and it goes away in about 30 minutes. So you can keep hitting that button over and over and over again. And I think the level of restriction should probably be compatible with the drug itself. With LSD, it's very hard to consistently put yourself in a, a situation where you're going to lose access to this world and you're going to become someone who is essentially lost. Uh, but with perhaps DMT, now that I think about it, something that I have been way too flippant with myself um, and with friends and people that I've helped guide through trips, 
I've never had someone have a bad experience when I'm there. The issue is when I leave them with the tool and I leave, and I didn't realize that I was actually doing anything. I was doing it rather selfishly. Like I enjoyed sharing the experience. For me, this was some form of sacrament. And when I went with someone, um, I got to share that with them. And if they were uh, being too excitable, if they had certain fears or anxieties, I felt like I was able to exert a calming presence. You know, if I needed to physically bar the door from someone entering who wanted to bug the person having a trip. But then when I would not be around them and just give them this tool, many, many, many people would just lose themselves. So I have to see that there is some type of, if not limited access, some type of, you know, warning, infomercial, whatever, that they someone needs to um, have and engage with before they begin the experience. And perhaps that is fear-mongering. Perhaps that is having own access to this only with a trained individual, psychoanalyst, a shaman, religious personnel, someone who could help guide them through their journey, and perhaps even say, no, you can't have this experience right now if there is someone, you know, we always hear about the person who shows up to the hospital to get pain pills, perhaps there's someone who's trying to go on too many psychic journeys, and you can tell that they've already deteriorated. But I don't think there's any real way to do this in a large-scale system the only thing that I could imagine was that the, the the gatekeepers would be the shamans or the individuals. And very fortunate for us, for a lot of these substances, now it's way too easy to get access to anything, porn, LSD, whatever. Um, with some of these substances, the gatekeeper is the individual who has it. Mm-hmm. And not to say that if you know how to make DMT, congrats, you get to be the gatekeeper. Um, but I found that when some you, you freely give it to someone else, that is when the problems start. <laughs> when you give them access without you, yeah, this is the uh, Promethean archetype or the Luciferian archetype that you're giving the sciences and the arts of writing, uh, the arts of fire to man. And man's good when you are controlling it for them. But when you leave or you go to get punished by Zeus, you know, man comes and does something altogether different with it. And there's a Promethean way to read this where that's a good thing, right? This is what uh, Georgiani, the... Um, philosopher from uh, Stony Brook, I think, in New York City. That's, that's his view, right? That these, uh, this alchemy and, and Promethean archetype is, is a good thing for man, that all the religions and gods are instructions for how to become greater than the gods, right? This very Nietzschean reading. And then there's the much more, quote unquote, conservative reading, which is the Luciferian, that the knowledge of good and evil, agriculture, right? This is where Tegazinski comes in, that all these uh, t- technologies have actually estranged us from our natural state and will continue to make us more robotic and less human as we become less flesh and more machine, more pharmacon. So it's difficult how you read the the lines in between that. And those lines are always based on mythologies that are, for most people, totally unconscious. For some people, a combination of conscious and unconscious. Um, and I, I don't, I again, and there's no, there's no um, diagnosis or... Um, uh, prognosis I, I can give here because we're in a very weird age of humanity. So, sorry, Calvin, you want to say something? I just want to ask, and not to interrupt, but at some point, I wanted to ask you how exactly you got into making the DMT because you mentioned that uh, a second ago, if, if you're make it, you're the gatekeeper. How exactly did you start kind of that journey of of creating it yourself? And how how did you do that? Well, it starts like all things with someone being bored. Um, so in high school, uh, we were a bunch of kids who were in smart classes and were having a smart time. But even then, we ended up getting way too bored gambling in the back of the classroom, 
doing whatever we needed to. The joke was, ha, 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 bet you could make both of the ingredients in this lab. We probably could have. Uh, and then it came to discovering like what drugs are easily accessible. Of course, you know, you go to the store and you can buy Benadryl, diphenhydramine. Do not ever take diphenhydramine <laughs> and hope to have a good time. <laughs> I have never done it because I'm too scared to. I have done almost anything that I can get my hands on. Do not ever try diphenhydramine. It scares me. Uh, and then there was dextromethorphan, which is what you get from cough syrup. Um, and then when I realized we could extract that, I looked into the method of it. And then I realized that almost all plant-derived drugs are extracted in the same manner. So is cocaine. There is something called a basic nitrogen, which means there's a nitrogen um, in the molecule that you can change it from being positive or negative. And the positive or negative shift means it can go from water into something called a nonpolar solvent. Gasoline is what they use when they extract cocaine, stuff of that nature. And I just very quickly realized that as opposed to trying LSD or mushrooms, I could try something that was much shorter. And I just heard about something called the businessman's trip or DMT. And it was, I hadn't heard of anyone uh, using it. Again, I was young at the time um, in high school. And my friend was like, hey, um, I would like to try this. And I was like, well, I like you and I want you to survive. So I will help you make it safely. Um, because I understand chemistry uh, and you want to do DMT. So I, you can just Google how to make DMT and apparently it's like extremely straightforward. Uh, access, thankfully right now, is policed uh, in terms of access to the materials. So um, the material to make DMT uh, is something called uh, Acacia confusa or Mimosa hostilis. It's a certain type of plant. You can look um, for the plants that contain DMT and the list is literally inexhaustible. There are more plant species that contain DMT than I could list in a lifetime or we could discover as a species, but some of them contain it in abundance. Uh, Mimosa hostilis, I don't believe that's a formal, actual accepted name. That's just like a, even though it sounds sciencey, that's just the name that we ascribe to a certain type of plants that look similar. I believe the actual type of, um, the name is Acacia confusa. And one aspect of that plant, particularly the outer root bark, contains one to 2% DMT and it looks purple. Like when I got, the root, I swore up and down that someone had just gotten a bag of mulch and dumped a purple powder dye in there. Um, because when you take it out, it just has a plume of purple uh, smoke, it looks like, that comes off of it. But basically, you just do um, a very simple extraction. You boil it in vinegar. Um, you do that a couple of times. You take that liquid, you boil it down. And then you do a couple more chemical operations and out pops crystal DMT. And that was just crazy that it was just that simple. It's a few chemical steps. Um, and we convinced my parent or his parents uh, that we were actually just making rocket fuel in his uh, kitchen. We got away doing it in his parents' kitchen. <laughs> That's so much better. <laughs> yeah. And I did that a few times. Then I realized like, oh, uh, that's really cool. But I was personally scared off of drugs because uh, I have a family history of mental illness, yada, yada, yada. And I decided to stay away from them myself. And then as I got older, um, around 21, I started, I found some LSD. I found a friend that I trusted and we tripped. Uh, and I really like walking. So we did LSD at 3 p.m., which is way too late to be doing it. And we just walked 17 miles. I realized, well, if that's a great time. These things aren't that bad. I've been lied to my whole life. Uh, and then Earth Day was coming up and I had a friend who um, had some mushrooms. So I did a hero's dose on my first time. Um, hero's dose. So it's approximately five grams, I think is what people call it. I had a quarter of an ounce, which is a little over seven grams. And I gave her two and a half and I did five. Um, and we went to the Arboretum in Lexington. <laughs> That's and, where I've tripped several times. <laughs> and, and it was Earth Day. And we ended up waddling around. Um, if you know math, um, I swear the come up felt identical to what I imagine a Laplace transform is. Um, also, your thoughts are just Fourier transforms. I would love to get into that, but there's not going to be the time. 
Oh, oh okay. Uh, and we ended up making it at the Arboretum and we crashed beneath. I don't, it's not a cherry bush, but the flowers were really small, pink. And uh, it's right outside of that flower garden. There's a there's a tree who let blooms in early April. And as we put our heads down, some children came up and run to us and bothered us and kicked the dandelions at our feet. And then their parents came over and I like struggled for three minutes to sit upright. And then I finally did. And the parents took one look at us and was like, have a nice trip. And we're like, thanks. (laughs) And then 20 minutes later or so, time doesn't matter. uh, Behind us, apparently people got married in that flower garden. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it was just an absolutely wonderful time. And I I think I achieved a breakthrough on that because at one point when I put my head back down into a bed of violets, and I checked later, there actually were violets there. Um, My my consciousness, I didn't have any of the terms or any understanding to describe it, but I, I sunk into the earth, into the anthill, and then far beneath that. And then I wasn't here anymore. Um, I definitely felt interior to something. And I looked up and there were three-dimensional spherical gears colliding past one another. And I think I, I had contact with what I believe people call machine elves and all that. And I just had a great time. And then I came to, and four hours later, I had lunch with my parents. Um, and then after that, I realized I need to try this DMT stuff. So I uh, reordered it and I made, made it myself um, in about one afternoon uh, in my apartment at the time. And my roommate at the time uh, was a pharmacy student at UK. And he asked what I was doing. I told him I'm making rocket fuel in our kitchen. <laughs> and then it worked again. Um, and then I uh, made the DMT. And back then, uh, now you can find it in cartridges, which is absolutely fantastic and 100% safer than the uh, pseudo crack pipe that I made it out of where you drill a hole in the wine bottle, uh, super glue a straw to the bottom of it, put some steel wool in the neck of the wine bottle, sprinkle crystal DMT in the top, hold a lighter to it, inhale, and then hope you don't end up with a fireball of DMT at one end uh, as you lose consciousness and fall backwards. And then I realized it was always safer to do it with one other person. Uh, and then throughout that summer, and I was like, wow, this thing is really cool. Uh, and to me, it was the closest thing I had a sacrament to the time. Um, and I brought all my friends over over the course of a summer that I thought would be interested in it um, and indoctrinated them into uh, doing psychedelics with me. Uh, and then they all wanted to keep coming back and doing it. Um, and I've just made sure that I've had a steady supply uh, ever since. Long-winded answer. And I don't know where that quite leaves us. That's very interesting. Did you have something, Seraphim, or? Oh. I just find it interesting that you refer to it as a sacrament. Uh, why use that terminology? Um, because you die and meet God. <laughs> uh, I, you be, go into the underworld. You, you, I, I 100% believe that. Um, and I luckily made it there hundred, a little over uh, a couple hundred times before I finally had contact with entities in the DMT realm. Um, and then I did. And that actually scared me off of doing it for a little over a year because I was in, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a materialist and I was in my head. And then I realized that as I was coming back to, that there is an aspect of me and that I had other things in my head that weren't me, that were Mm -hmm. operating independent of me. And that's when I realized that something was weird. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I called it a sacrament because I I understand in in church, you give people the sacrament and you help bring them into the faith. And also you help secure their soul and their safety in the afterlife. And for me, I just had something really, really, really cool that was definitely spiritual. And I just had the burning need to share it with those around me, particularly those that I knew could emotionally, spiritually handle it and that I thought could benefit from it. And at some point that I thought could also pass it along. Now, 
So, <laughs> so I can. Okay, say say what you. Yeah, mean. I'm gonna say what I'm gonna say, and then you can respond, because I I do find it interesting that you, you you refer to it as a sacrament, and then you clarified it as sort of a uh, going into the underworld, which in in very much classical mythology. And the, Christian mythology. And yeah, which comes out of classical mythology in a lot of ways. Uh, the Katabasis, which is the going into the underworld. Mm-hmm. So this all seems to come back to some sort of spiritual experiment. You rece- experience. You're, you're receiving a sacrament and then you're going into the underworld. You're going through the hero's journey. You're going through the Katabasis. It seems like all these experiences with these very hard drug experiences uh it, it all seems to have a spiritual realm to it so yeah Corey. i mean what, what so i mean basically man was constantly in the state of the sacramental reality uh according to most mythologies there's a state where you are not separated from the divine and in the mythology we're familiar with in the west the tree of the knowledge of or the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the first sacrament but it's an inverse sacrament because that was a sacrament according to the church fathers that was reserved after the sacrament of the tree of life, right? Which is the manifest in history as the cross. What happens is that because the sacraments were done in a chronological order that was not uh, efficient to human enlightenment, um, all sacraments coming after this have to be a a negation of that negation. Um, So all sacramentality, which in a certain sense, as I was saying last podcast, that everything is magic. There's a sense in which everything is sacramental. But a sacrament is something that takes us into the other world and makes us aware of our death. It makes us aware of our finitude and takes away the ego. Um, This is what it does, at least on a spiritual and conscious level, hopefully maybe also on a conscious level. The pharmacon is acting in that way to take us in the case of the Eucharist. It's dying with Christ and the baptism, the reformation of the baptism and the taking on the actual cannibalistic body and blood of the one who went into the underworld and that you too will be risen back. But in any case, any of these sacraments taking you into the world beyond the astral plane, uh, the underworld, uh, that these guides or shamans uh, are your Virgil and you're the Dante who has to go to hell to see a sin, to see the darkness. And this is also the realm where you are able to start to contemplate the existence of the other spirits and the other people who are constantly around us, but we don't have an immediate empirical uh, relationship with. And what, what I wanted to ask Ryan too, is that, you know, someone who's coming at this from this, uh, uh, as most people nowadays, uh, this material, and, and you have a scientific background, so even more so this materiality, how were you at first then, how did you try to understand and conceptualize these entities and how has that evolved to your understanding now? So I went, uh, part of the issue with these substances and these experiences um, is how ephemeral they are. Mm -hmm. Because when you do DMT, and there was someone that I I was with recently who who was fortunate to take several trips there um, into the other side. And she came back and she wanted nothing but to go back, but she couldn't remember anything about it. So with uh, the high dose hero's journey, whatever, of mushrooms, I didn't recall the entities until I re-encountered them years later. And I didn't have to justify any of that mm-hmm. to myself, to any of the 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 contact, as it were. Uh, contact, be it aliens, um, spirits, what have you. A- until you have that, there's not really a sense for, there wasn't a sense for me that I had to justify anything until there was something inside me that I couldn't explain because I could explain away everything else. Everything else was reasonable um, you know, to a certain extent that 
what, because what these substances do is they unlock certain experiences that I believe are relatively intrinsic. Now that that belief may may have changed since then, are, are relatively intrinsic to the human experience because chemically all it is is it's something that interacts with the receptor and changes the way your neurons fire. So the experience itself is still human. Now, is it spiritual? Absolutely. But the, the drug itself doesn't change what I am as a human. And it doesn't, the drug doesn't give me the ability to experience that. I already had the ability to experience that. The drug is basically the key, but there are many keys. And some of them might be endogenous coming from the body to do that. Right, there's DMT in the body, right? There's absolutely some amount of DMT. Uh, who is it? Terrence McKenna. We're all packing. We all are packing. Um, and then beyond that, you could have the right amount of serotonin, melatonin, and a litany of other endogenous chemicals that could also give a very similar response. So... Uh, the, the way I explained it was I didn't, and I just thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and I, I'd like to circle back a little bit to, to your mentioning about these very, these many things that were um, the sacrament and the, the willingness to die. And I realized that a, the part of the reason I, I might enjoy DMT and treat it as a sacrament and a lot of the other things in life that I enjoy, I also treat as a sacrament, uh, the, the, the finitude of life and the willingness to die. Um, a lot of the coolest experiences in my life were moments where I looked at a mountain, and I said, I'm going to climb that or die trying. And I didn't mean, oh, I'm going to climb that and give it my best shot. There's a sign about one and a half miles into a 10-mile hike, and it says continue or die. Because um, if you try to climb back down, you're going to die of exposure. He who uh, puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Uh, and, and I take that approach to to a lot of things. Um, to, to make a, a very funny example of things, uh, is when I really want to run, um, I, I know the easiest way to make sure I'm actually giving it my all is to convince myself that I'm going to die. So I, I put on, um, they're coming to take me away by the butcher babies, and I convince myself that there's someone behind <laughs> me who is going to kill me, take me, what have you, um, and I give it my all. And then same thing with weightlifting and any of these experiences. Um, am I allowed to curse? Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I go, I go into these, these experiences and um, my, my goal was to get skull fucked by the gods. Yeah. Um, well, that's not a cursing. That's a blessing. <laughs> well, and I was, I was, I was, I was recently <laughs> disappointed the first few times. That's um, literally the meaning of pharmacon, the curse that blesses. Yeah. Uh, so I, I guess if there's any really wise chemistry person wants to reproduce DMT themselves, um, don't make it too pure uh, because if you do, you'll be disappointed by the experience. Make sure it's a little bit yellow when you're finished with the chemistry. Um, <clears throat> this actually reminds me of something that you and I, Corey, were talking about. And maybe we talked about it on the podcast. Um before, if not, we've talked about it in private. And, and I, I think this goes back to what we were saying a little bit earlier about drugs and, and sort of propheticness and, you know, shamans and, and like the work of Delphi where I think people look at these things as sort of like inherently, oh, they're bad. They, they meddle with your mind. You, you, you're, you're out of yourself. And it's like, well, maybe, yeah, that's all true to some degree, but it's sort of also like, I guess what I'm thinking is like, okay, so we were talking about before, like the, uh, in the Kaliuga, in the modern age, everything's available to everyone. All the esoteric things, you know. In a, the, prof in, in a profane way. Yes. Like you, but also like you can go to Amazon and you can like order very esoteric mystical books that yeah, in, I mean, right, in right. the past would have been very hidden. You, you could only get through symbology and ritual that was 
even so far as passed on orally, it was it was hidden. And Guadon even says his specific point, and I think in some way he struggled with this, is that he wants to make available readily what was kept secret. And because he had been initiated into all these French occult orders that were not doing it for him, right? He was in the Masons, he was in uh, Theosophy, and he wrote very early in his career these two books sort of taking down Masonic ideology and Theosophy as a pseudo-religion. Um, and But basically what he's saying is like, look, I understand there are heroic individuals who are looking for this, but it's very hard to attain. So I'm going to make the sacrifice and profane the mysteries. And yeah, and it seems like, so it seems like like these sort of experiences, these sort of um, drugs, it's almost not like they're bad in and of themselves, but more that it seems like a college student who's very ignorant can go to a party and subject themselves to these very high level experiences and have no idea what the fuck they're doing. Whereas like in the and, past- And I will say just quickly as an, as an interjection, that is precisely the fool. That's the fool who has the dog nipping on his ankle in the tarot, right? The, right, the, the yeah. zero card. He's not aware of what's about to bite him. He's not aware of fate. If, if you look at even at the Marseille, more traditional tarot decks, it's typically biting at his genitalia. He's about to be castrated. And he's about to be plunged into a state of infertility where he's not able to give birth, to give his seed. So there's an aspect in which to return to the state of, in the Lacanian terms, the possession of phallus, the possession of the ability to generate, he first has to be castrated in order to attain uh, the sword, in order to attain the, the sword and the stone, right? In an Arthurian legend, you first had to be castrated by Merlin. You had to be put in your place. You had to be made a fool. So there's a sense in which at the same time, especially in the Kali Yuga, that is absolutely the perfect spot to be initiated. But it seems that like in, in modern times, a lot of people just go to a party, take these drugs, have these experiences with none of the prerequisite of understanding what this does yes. and how this enters you into yeah. the spiritual world where it's like, well, maybe if you're prepared, maybe if you understand some of these, of these things, maybe if you're initiated to some degree, you can experience these things and get something out of them. Whereas a lot of people, they just jump in and they have no idea what the hell is going on. Yeah. And they just are like overwhelmed yeah. where it sounds like these things aren't necessarily bad in of themselves, but it's more that they're so available now yeah. that any sort of, 18-year-old frat boy can go and take all this stuff and get into this dimension and be very lost. It seems like these things may be okay if they have the right tradition and yes. the right kind of prerequisites that, that yes. lead you into them. That seems, I mean, it, maybe I'm wrong, but that seems to be more of what you guys are saying, which is like, these things are very powerful and we have to know how to experience them. I, I wouldn't even say it's so much having the right prerequisite tradition. It's more so not getting caught in the traps of counter-initiation. The thing that as, as going on and Avila will describe things like masonry and theosophy is that they're counter-initiatory. Um, and the problem is that once you've entered into the other world, once you've seen beyond the veil, okay? The problem is, is that whereas most traditional societies lived and breathed the procedure for where to go about once that happens, we no longer have any direct system or direct path of initiation. So you have a frat boy who, or a sorority girl who does ayahuasca and they've seen the other side. They realize that their whole life has been a lie, blah, 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 blah. But what are they going to do? Join the Masons, look into theosophy, get into some like new age astrology bullshit. Like the question, the question, the more fundamental question is, or the more fundamental problem with Pharmacon is what happens afterwards. And, and that's, the, that's the tricky thing. And, I, and again, I don't have any prognosis for this. Um, 
in, in the Caliuga, where we are now, it is total chaos and sort of everyone for themselves. Like there is not, it's going to happen and there's nothing you can do about it. And the best thing you can do is hope that people find the way, but that is very, very hard. You know, the path is wide and, the, and those who find it are, are few, right? Many enter, many are called, but few find the way. And this so, goes to you, uh, Ryan. So do you find that your experience changes based on your intentions when you start a trip? Can you kind of control the direction or do you just take it and let whatever happens happen? Or do you go in with a set expectation of what you want to have happen or what you're trying to experience? So it depends a lot on the substance and how much you take. Um, I, I'm going to talk mostly about DMT because that's kind of the, the immediate light speed warp drive into the other form of consciousness into the underworld. It's harder to get there in other methods, in my opinion. I have tried to bring things over with me. Um, in general, my personal practice was, and I don't adhere to it well enough, was I, I try to have major life changes in between, and I realize I've screwed up royally after listening to a few episodes of this podcast, <laughs> was I would wait till <clears throat> excuse me, something changed in my life and there, there was a change in circumstances and I needed a new perspective or I needed to ask for help again. Much like many people would probably look towards divinatory tarot. And I would try to bring earlier on in my experiences, I would try to bring that new experience with me in, in my new direction. And I would bring the question of where to next or what am I doing with me? Um, and sometimes I, I would actually uh, get, it's not, an, not necessarily an answer, but a, but a new set of directions. Um, if you look into again, like what, what is medicinally or, or what have you, whatever approximates medicine in this day and age uh, towards what people are expecting out of these substances, uh, you would use it for a new perspective on life or whatever. And I would try to, okay, I would say, justify to myself, my life has changed to some degree. Great, now I get to do DMT and figure out what happens next. I have tried um, in more controlled circumstances to try to bring over other questions. Like I, I did, um, I've done research uh, and I would try to, I'm bad at programming, and I would try to bring a question of how do I solve this algorithm? How do I bring this problem with me? How do I solve this? And I would always find myself under-equipped. And there was one time where I didn't have anything to do and I was just had free time. Uh, and I found myself like on my friend's couch and I was like, I'm just going to go all the way over. And I, I found myself with infinite ability mentally. I, I realized that I could solve any mathematical problem over there provided I could conceptualize the tools that I needed to solve that problem. I could see infinity. I could manipulate it however I wanted. And then I realized when I was over there, I was bereft of the question that I wanted to ask, if that answers your question. And I've used it meditatively. I've used it divinatorily, which I realized was a ridiculous mistake. And I, and I do caution other people, don't go over there expecting to be given answers um, or solutions or anything of that sort. But you can go over there and say, this is where I am. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I've experienced. Um, and then especially if you feel like you're stuck and set in a certain pattern of thought, this will break you of that. You might not be ready for that. Uh, and one big word of caution, is, and I didn't know this was a possibility until I'd given it to the 20th person or so. Um, if you really, really, really enjoy the cannabis experience, don't do DMT. Uh, for some people, the cannabis experience changes from anxiolytic, meaning it relieves you of anxiety, uh, to hallucinatory. Um, some people, apparently, for now, that after they've done DMT, uh, cannabis is now uh, hallucinogenic for them. That happened to me, but with LSD. I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> 
you know, I mean, for some people, that's a boon. Like for me, I'm sitting here like, I wish I could just buy weed and it was hallucinatory. Um, but but for others, if you thoroughly enjoy the cannabis experience, uh, you don't need to be messing around with DMT or anything of that sort. I hope that answers your question. All right, we have hit the end of the 50-minute hour. but We've decided, given our special guest, that we're going to do another, well, as you said, time doesn't matter. In the, in the, tradition, <laughs> in the tradition of Lacan, the psychoanalyst who would sometimes long or very greatly shorten his sessions to five minutes. Um, sometimes the therapist sees that there are interludes in a patient's progress where the marker of time has to be broken. And I think this might be one of them. So we'll continue on. I feel like this is a very fitting topic for that uh, because one of the biggest things about psychedelics is the, the quote unquote time loop. Um, luckily, I haven't experienced it too much myself. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and, and take that and segue into... Uh, a question for you in, I know you're not a materialist, but what is a thought? And when I tell you red fire truck, if you had to imagine that there is a place in your body that corresponds to a red fire truck and the memory of it, the thought, the idea, how does the human mind conceptualize a red fire truck if you're not actively seeing it? There are many traditions to answer that question. And my favorite go-to is just Platonism. Not to say Platonism is the only tradition. It's just my favorite and it's the one I'm most accustomed to and it's the one I'm most comfortable with. Um, th to say very quickly, as, an, as a, the modern theories of consciousness, you have, you have people on the scene like Bentley Hart, David Bentley Hart, um, the Australian philosopher Ch uh, Ch Ch Chalmers. There we go, David Chalmers. Um, and I side more with Hart on this, which is a sort of Neoplatonic route, obviously. The problem, the problem with modern theories or philosophies of consciousness is, in, to my, in my view, is that a lot of the materialist or physicalist, not to say reductionist, but at least physicalist views, is that they're trying to sweep under the rug the problem of consciousness. Basically, we haven't yet made the sufficient advances in science and the science of neurology to understand where exactly to locate. You take, you, there are physicalist reductionists or material reductionists who say, you know, you, pin, you point somewhere to, on the brain and we can, we can point at it eventually. Then there's other people like Freud, um, who is a materialist, but would say that no matter how advanced the, the, the science becomes, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. He's an Aristilian at the end of the day that um, consciousness, and even so far it's material, is nonetheless composed of the whole in communion with itself. I take neither of those views. I'm just giving as a prelude to what I'm about to say. I have more what you might call the radio view of consciousness, which is that the conscious being, which isn't even actually, I don't think, I think the Egyptians are actually right about this. It's not even so much located in the brain. It's actually more the chest area or the heart, um, that they're actually neuronal uh, aspects that don't really communicate very well in the empirical world that exist in other parts of the body, like the gut or the heart, um, or even as the Hindus would say, in all seven parts of the human chakras. In either case, and so far that the brain is functioning as a very immediate empirical reality in connection to this. The brain is sort of like the antenna of the radio of the soul. Um, when, I, when you say red fire truck, I have a form of my noose, the highest part of the human soul that is connecting to the idea of red that exists before and eternally the creation of all reality and material reality as well. And then the idea of a vehicle or a truck that is in some way communicating itself directly within my culture purview of my own history individually. But if we take a more originistic or Gregory Nician or let's say Maximus Confessor sort of view that this aspect of the soul, which is godly, it pre-exists not only myself and my being in this history uh, or what I'm thrown into as Heidegger would say, um, but actually something uh, beyond creation itself 
as to say an idea of God, that I'm actually being recalled to a primordial state of my being that is then communicating within my culture and history. And then more specifically, the language that you're using to communicate that idea. So the language is representative that uh, of an idea that then my brain, my mind, whatever you want to say there, communicates to the above. And the above brings it down to me in my own individual history and psychology. So do you think that spirit is time indeterminate or has some function of time? So do, do you think that the spirit has already experienced all that will happen? Or do you think there is some degree of time to it and that the spiritual experience changes not only as a function of change in the material world, but that it does not have quite the connection to the past um, insofar as that it can see maybe some idea of an event that will happen, but it hasn't experienced that event? Or do you think that the ability to experience thoughts, ideas, you know, the awful example is an iPhone, but in the year 1980, do you think that, I mean, obviously there are individuals, Huxley in particular, that could probably very well capture the idea of an iPhone and not just um, that there's going to be a square that my people, students in particular, look at all day and have no idea what's going on and have no ability to absorb information because they're entirely distracted and being sucked into um, this purely materialistic world that doesn't actually exist, that they fool themselves into thinking is all that matters, but that they ha that Huxley had this idea and this connection to this idea that there, there will be some technology that is so consuming and that he was able to experience it himself? Or do you think that that experience wasn't able to cross into the human realm until we did reach that point in time. I just, I just want to say first though, that um, there is a part of us that some might call the soul, some might call the spirit that is primordial and beyond time. And although it humiliates itself by being in the body and subjecting itself to time and space is ultimately beyond those things and perceives outside of time, which in our view is, the future, the past, what have you. And there's some sense in which even these visions when constrained within the body are also being constrained by time and space and therefore limited. But there are breakthroughs beyond those limitations, if that answers your question. So do you want to give a, uh, uh, tell them what you're about to try to do? Yes, uh, <laughs> our shaman psychonaut friend has offered me just a, a small hit of DMT to sort of uh, instigate. Uh, I brought the Yes. All right, so here. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll resume the podcast no. and explain what's going to happen. Okay, so I was just fiddling with this technology. I hate all of technology um, insofar as uh, it doesn't provide me DMT. Um, I think that we should go back all the way to an agrarian or pre-agrarian society. Um, but that being said, since we're in the modern era, I'm thoroughly going to enjoy it. Um, we just have a DMT dissolved one-to-one -one vape juice in a cart, and our gracious host is willing to imbibe in a relatively low dose of it, certainly not enough uh, to send you into the afterlife or the underworld. Um, it's also easier to avoid that in this form uh, when you do it in a cart. It's a much slower up. If you ever do crystal in the aforementioned um, more advanced crack pipe that I was talking about. Uh, it's very hard to avoid a breakthrough in that situation. Um, this is going to be approximate to a low-dose mushroom experience and just tickle those serotonin receptors we're so fond of. Um, so 
So I just press the button and breathe in? Yeah, press how the button. How long do I breathe in? I would recommend breathing in for about five seconds. And then, so press the button, breathe in for five seconds, let go of the button, keep breathing in for two seconds, pull it into your lungs, hold it there for a little bit. And if I see any vapor exhaled, I will be disappointed. Normally, I do a lot more coaching, but I'm just totally unaware of how to do it in this setting. And exhale. Very good. It so, tastes like cotton candy. Yeah. So it's uh, a surprisingly, yeah. surprisingly so, nice taste. Yeah. So you, you won't notice very much at the beginning. Yes, the, the vape juice is flavored. Again, oh, okay. We live in the, the modern era. Um, <laughs> I it, was like, wow, that's a weird taste. <laughs> yeah, no. So it, it's crazy because uh, traditional DMT tastes god-awful. I hear it nickels or whatnot. I taste burning tires when I do it. Um, no, I'm, I'm very good. I don't deserve it. I, I've done far, far, far too much of this. Um, so I'm going to encourage you to keep going. You definitely won't reach any point where you're going to go unconscious or anything of that sort. You have to you have to earn that. Trust me. Uh, that requires quite a bit of coaching, a much more relaxed environment. This is going to be far too anxiogenic or anxiety generating for us to achieve that. That would generally require. Also, this is not something that I would recommend at all doing at a party. Again, in the cart form, you probably can get away with it. Um, but when you do get to the point where you, you start um, leaving your body, uh, you lose total physical control. So do not ever ever think about doing this while driving, operating heavy machinery, or even walking on concrete to be entirely clear. Uh, because at some point it will uh, greatly relax you. Um, so I believe the medical term is it reduces the tone of your muscles um, and you're just going to get really loosey-goosey. Uh, and also uh, having a muscle tone, having any a degree of tension and coordination is going to diminish the experience. So one thing that once you start hitting it, you want to get more and more comfortable until you find the maximal comfortable position where you're going to be laying on your back, supine, uh, probably without a pillow, and then you're just going to smile and thoroughly enjoy yourself beyond that. Uh, I, I don't really feel anything. Am I supposed to feel something already? Not much, no. Yeah. I mean, generally, you would have to keep, uh, I believe the term is chiefing this consistently for quite a while. Um, I, I, off of a brief sip, notice something, but again, been here, done that for me. Right, I've never done DMT, so this... Yeah. I mean, I, I, I continue, I would coach people to do what you did and then essentially do it nonstop. So five in, continue inhaling for two, hold, exhale. Without the coaching, how how dangerous is it in a, in a physical sense? Like, could you, I know nothing about DMT. Could you die just from DMT, like without like crashing a car? Could you die from that? And is the, so the coaching, like how, how dangerous is it without? Any, you know, if you have a large enough group of people, all right, story time, fine, sure, you've convinced me into it. So I, I, I gave, I gave um, a couple of, uh, excuse me, no, somehow my friend ended up with uh, a couple of carts. I, I know not how possibly that could have happened. Um, and he came to me for, for my sage advice, of course. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, I get a phone call, relatively urgent from him. And I'm like, hey, what's up? He's like, hey, something happened with one of the carts and my friend. And here I am thinking, oh my God, they went to a hospital, they had a panic attack, something wrong. Maybe finally someone got physically hurt. I'm like, oh my God, what happened? And then apparently ex post facto, he informs me that he loves putting people on the spot in that moment. And he just puts her on speaker and he's like, should you tell him or can I? And then I hear a girl's voice and she says, okay, okay, I'll tell him. So apparently she uh, took enough through the cart and uh, broke through and then proceeded to orgasm for 20 consecutive minutes. <laughs> and then asked, is this normal? And I said, no, absolutely not. That is normal. That is not normal. 
But if you give any substance to a sufficiently large population, very weird things are going to happen. I know people, if I take Benadryl, I'm unconscious. I'm not safe to drive a vehicle. I'm allergic to uh, certain things. I take Benadryl in response and I'm useless for 12 to 16 hours following. I know some people, you give them Benadryl and they're like six-year-olds that have been given literal crack cocaine. It's like a completely ridiculous. Yeah, and so this individual, she was like, is this safe? I'm like, yeah, it's still safe. Uh, but most people, they say you can't get addicted to DMT. If you took something and then orgasm for 20 consecutive minutes. I imagine it's relatively easy to get psychologically addicted to that <laughs> substance, especially since you can take it every hour on the hour and get that effect continuously and continuously. So I was like, no, it's not physically dangerous, uh, but just don't do it for another week or so. And then of course, I don't hear from him for another month. And he's like, yeah, she did it again. The exact same thing happened. And I'm like, well, some people get all the luck in life. So <laughs> physically, no. Um, but you absolutely can get lost and some very weird things can happen. And there probably are some individuals that could find some form of toxicity to it. Uh, but in general, I would say physically, it is one of the safest things that you could do from a pharmacological perspective. Can I ask, and you don't have to get too personal, but what has been like the weirdest experience you've had or one of the weirdest? So unfortunately, a little bit of chemistry time. So you can um, increase the purity of DMT when you do the extraction. Again, it goes mimosa hostilis, boil it in vinegar, and then you generally extract it with, um, or then you basify it, meaning you add a base. So you go to Lowe's and you buy Red Devil Lye, um, which is 100% sodium hydroxide, and then you add a bunch of base. And the chemistry term is until black. Now, most people think, oh, this is darker, it's now black. When a chemist says black, it means blacker than some people. Anyway, very black. Uh, and you can end up with a very pure, clear crystal DMT. Somehow I ended up with it and I consumed it with a friend on a log uh, on a beautiful riverside in Kentucky. Uh, luckily, I believe it's bluebells. They're a beautiful blue flower, about half the size of my hand. And we were in a wonderful few, uh, like a floodplain, uh, stony field um, sitting on a log. And we managed to go through an entire cart in an hour between the two of us consuming a half gram of this, which is, if it were pure DMT, it would be literally 20, 30 trips per person consumed nonstop over the course of an hour. And serotonin's a molecule that hits a certain receptor. The receptor is the same receptor that DMT hits, and these other molecules probably hit it too. And it has other weird effects like salivation. And we're not, we haven't spoken of it since, but my friend and I just sat there and we consumed the entire cart in the course of that hour and had a very surreal experience <laughs> where we both like laid down on the log and we were in trippy world for a very long time. And normally on DMT, I can't keep my eyes open. I, just, I have to close them. It's very individualistic, but I cannot keep my eyes open. I'm forced to close them and have closed eye visuals. And then I lose connection to myself. But I never lost my ego in this experience. And I kept my eyes open the whole time. And when we really came into ourselves, both of our, the tops of our shirts were just soaked in drool because the certain serotonin agonism just causes this drooling. And that was the point where I realized um, that this was uh, the most hedonistic experience I'd ever had um, and that I did have to be mindful. So I'm very thankful for that experience. Um, we didn't do anything weird, but it, we, like we both just never talk about that with each other because not only do we lack the terms to describe it, but we were both already grunting, ape-like, and drooling. And we just kept going for another 50 consecutive minutes. And uh, yeah, I would say that's probably the weirdest DMT experience. It sounds uh, psychoanalytically what we would call infantilization. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> like you went back to baby mode. Yeah, like I like Sterner a lot. So at that moment, you like Sterner? Oh, I love Sterner. Nice. Well, a, a, a mutual <laughs> friend of ours. Uh, has described me as an egoist many times. And I'm like, I don't know what that word means. And then I looked it up and I'm like, oh, this is all of my philosophy that uh -huh. I've held my entire life. I've had many different flavors of it. I was a libertarian, I'm a materialist, yada, yada, yada. But it always comes back to this is pleasing to my ego. And then the rest of you need to hope that I'm a decent person on the inside. Um, uh, so so back to the infantilism, uh, the, the scene in... Um, 2001 A Space Odyssey, right after all the super trippy stuff where he's a fetus in space staring at the earth. Yeah. A little bit like that yeah. with more drooling. Are there any drugs that you are like will not touch? So I mentioned diphenhydramine, which is high-dose Benadryl. Uh, you can use Benadryl as an antihistamine. Do not use it as um, a sleep aid in the long term. It will give you Alzheimer's disease. Um, I'm not a doctor. That's not medical advice. Uh, but just go ahead and trust me. Don't take it consistently. Um, so Benadryl, diphenhydramine. Uh, another one that has thoroughly scared me. Now, is, now just sorry, just just quickly, di diphenhydramine. That's also in regular sleep aid medicine, right? Yeah, and it's yeah. not supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. So that's how you know. I, I used to do like 100 milligrams of that just to get to sleep. Yeah, no, I did too for for years. Uh, and I, I used to have um, approximately an eidetic memory, mm -hmm. like you know, like <laughs> ha ha ha. I'm really smart. I have a photographic memory. No, I, I had very close to an eidetic memory, and then went basically a year or two straight of 50 milligrams of diphenhydramine a night. My memory has not even close to recovered. Um, and I thought it was, you know, me messing around with cannabis, you know, a couple times a week, but no, no it, it was definitely the diphenhydramine. It will induce amyloid plaques and it will give you what approximates Alzheimer's disease early onset. Um, and you will spend the rest of your life trying to undo that. Now, can you recover from that or is it permanent? Uh, we're still working on that. Um, so uh, if you want to recover from that, um, take choline. So either eat beef liver or take some supplement that has a highly bioavailable form of choline. Um, I'm not going to plug any companies right now, I guess, but uh, there's one that I personally um, enjoy, but you can just go on Google and look up alpha GPC, which is a highly bioavailable form of choline. Um, it's a, a very useful uh, substance. It's generally healthy for people. So you could use choline. Um, and then later on in life, uh, when you're old enough, you can ask your doctor about Alzheimer's medications. Like, I'm not going to name names uh, because if I mess it up, I will feel guilty. So anything that people think is good for Alzheimer's will probably um, help undo some of that damage. And just generally eat healthy. Take your fish oils, exercise. Don't drink too much. Don't drink at all. But... Uh, the, the other drug, um, and I've had uh, a couple bottles of this on my shelf for two years. It's the other one that I've been too scared to try, um, is dextromethorphan, um, DXM. Uh, you find it in cough syrup as robitussin. It's robotripping. Um, dextromethorphan hydrobromide is how you generally find it. Um, I've had it. I've had friends say it's their absolute favorite drug, and they've tried many, many, many drugs. Um, and a couple that have tried uh, not nearly as many drugs and friends who have also tried many, many, many drugs and said they loved it, um, but it's not their favorite. It, it generally just has very weird trips. Like I have a friend who's an arachnophobe um, who took a high-dose dextromethorphan. They saw a bunch of spiders? Well, no, they saw one spider. One spider. But he had the sword from Lord of the Rings. What's Aragorn's sword? I have no idea. Okay, he had Aragorn's <laughs> sword and uh, it had, it's edged. It had a sharp edge. Uh, and he drew it and he stood atop his bed and fought the the spider from Lord of the Rings, the one in the mountains right before you oh, get to- Oh, the Elder Mordor. God spider, right, yeah. Right, and he fought it. Wow. Like, not like he thinks he fought it, like he's certain. He fought it and he slew it. Now, that didn't destroy his ractophobia, but it has been significantly, <laughs> it has been significantly reduced since then. Yeah, um, I, I imagine someone with arachnophobia, 
even being in the room with that giant spider would be terrifying. So the fact he stayed in the room at all is heroic. Well, yeah, he wasn't going to let it get to his family. He has morals to some degree. And, and then there's the ones that I've actually not had access to as many drugs as I would like to. Um, I just have, when I have access to a drug, it's generally in some ridiculously obscene quantity. Like, oh, I like LSD. And then there's, oh, wow, how did 100 tabs get there? That's interesting. Oh, MDMA, that's interesting. Oh, oh my God, that's way too much. Uh, things of that nature. Um one thing that has scared me is the DOX series of drugs. They're um, phenethylamine-based drugs. Basically, they'd be similar to like mescaline, but like way more industrial and harsh. It sounds uh, like DOC. DOC, yeah. Very, I've done very, DOC. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Is it like a 24, 48-hour trip? I would say about 18. Okay. But, but the, the come up was what was intense about it. Yeah, no, I have, I've been relatively scared off of those. Yeah, it is scary. There's no good trip on DOC. <laughs> This is not a hard drug. It's pretty easy to get. Um, but I have ADHD and I've been looking into getting Adderall or Ritalin. Uh, that's my favorite drug. Adderall is my favorite drug off the bat. And my parents, they're scared I, I can't it. do it because that's the one drug. <laughs> I do tobacco. I do alcohol. Adderall is the only drug I'll get addicted to. If you gave me enough Adderall, I would take over the world. Um, and that is, there's a fair bit of hubris in that. It's, strictly speaking for Adderall, when it comes to stimulants, pretty much the most studied and the safest of all the traditional recreational stimulants is amphetamine, which is what Adderall is. Adderall is a mixture of 75% dextroamphetamine, 25% levoamphetamine. Um, and it, you can't even compare it to cocaine. They're not even remotely similar. Adderall is, amphetamine in particular, is extremely safe um, compared to any of the other stimulants, but it's literally addictive behavior in a pill. Now, you can cure ADHD. I'm 100% sure of that. But what it requires you to do is it requires you, if you're a student, to take your Adderall and you study. And that's it. You, you, as long as the effect of that drug is in your system, you are only productive and you avoid anything else that gives you dopamine. I mean, anything. You don't, you don't masturbate. You don't listen to music. As long as that drug is in your system, you do what you are supposed to do. And it will build that, that dopaminergic do this pathway and you will reap the rewards from that. If you use it, in any other capacity, it's just a recreational drug. Yeah, I, I never wrote more or thought more when I was, than when I was on Adderall. It was it was the most Apollonian experience I've ever had. Most drugs is, you know, archetypically Dionysian, but cocaine, Adderall, they're very Apollonian. And on Adderall, it was just I felt like Sartre when he was doing like three tabs of LSD, hundred twenty milligrams of Adderall, and you know he went to Lacan, and Lacan said. You know, he had, he had, Sartre had all these crabs following him and Lacan said they were a manifestation of his loneliness and Sartre just said, oh, okay, well, that's kind of cool. So he just let them fall around. I know this was after he got off, off all the drugs, the crabs kept following him around, but he just befriended them. Yeah, I would 100% agree. Um, when people say a drug is a drug, it's, that's just the most ridiculous statement that I can imagine. Like, I, it just doesn't even begin to make sense. They have such different effects and they evoke such different responses. Like there are some that make you think and some that make you do and some that make you numb. And you need to be careful, particularly what you are looking for. If you're ever looking to be numb, I'm just like, you have to be careful. If you're looking for numbness, for being remote, removed from others, that is not something you should ever seek to experience. And that means that you probably need to take care of yourself. So are, are you, you're probably not a fan of antidepressants. I mean, the single most effective antidepressant, in my opinion, is Adderall. 
<laughs> uh, to, to be entirely honest, um, I, I used to have very, very, very strong opinions against SR, SSRIs. Um, but, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a science boy. So if you get your genes examined, um, which some people let you do for some reason, uh, and you can see which drugs may or may not work better for you based off of your particular drug metabolisms um, and the general mechanism of SSRIs, like they have weird side effects. But I think what we're really hearing is these SSRIs in particular have uh, bad side effects on a certain number of individuals, and those individuals are disproportionately loud in the population. Um, some S some antidepressants, like the tricyclic antidepressants, the really old ones, they work stupendous for some people with horrendous side effects. Again, uh, I mean, again, you know, for some people, cannabis is an antidepressant. For some people, LSD is the antidepressant of choice. For some people, like I know someone who finally, after decades of you know psychotherapy or uh, excuse me, therapy, and seeing a psychiatrist, he finally his last therapist was like, Let, let's try Vivans. And it has completely solved his depression issues, which is um, it's a modified version of dextroamphetamine. So it's a it's more selective for the dextro um, and antimer than Adderall is. I, I would just say be careful and with any drug, steroids, any drug, take the minimum effective dose to get the response that you want. Um, and, and that's the, the only way to stay safe because once you get into chasing a dragon with anything, that's when you're going to run into issues. Now, Ryan, I wanted, I wanted to take the conversation back to your jump into this other realm. So you said you didn't, you didn't spend much effort or time trying to justify or conceptualize these things. Um, is that the attitude or, or mode of thinking that has sort of stuck with you since? No, I would definitely say um, I've had the fortune of changing, but not until um, I left academia. I was in an academic environment not to give away too much information, um, but I, I do good in school. I do school real good. Um, and I, I did really well in undergraduate. I had a couple of degrees. I got one B in undergraduate. And then um, I didn't realize that like jobs were a thing and I had to go participate in society. And I said, that sounds frightening. And then everyone had this expectation set for me that I would just go to grad school. So I fell into that. Um, and I accidentally fell my way into a top fellowship at like a top 20 university. Um, so I was just paid to, to sit in class for a little while. And then they expected me to like participate and do like lots of work at late hours. And I did that for a couple months and then quit. Um, and it wasn't until I, I was in the process of leaving and I decided to take more time for myself and I, and I started actually thinking that I realized that I'm not just some flesh bag that's on here to further math and science. Don't get me wrong. I love math and I, I feel like math actually does have... Um, almost a spiritual aspect to it, or at least the, the, the very sense of investigation and furthering the boundaries of mathematics. I don't find that to be materialistic at all. In fact, if you, you know, talk to mathematicians and physicists in particular, um, the, the worst part of mathematics in the 20th century was when physicists found the use for the 11th dimension. Because for a time, that was like the purview of mathematicians, magicians almost, who were imagining these things that had no physical relevance whatsoever, but we could conceptualize and we could manipulate and we could begin to to try to understand these higher dimensions, which when you do enough psychedelics, you'll, you'll start to actually begin to not visualize, but begin to understand how to interact with these dimensions and perhaps how that has a structure and how, how thought is formed, um, particular, I mean, anyway. Uh, and then they were extremely dismayed because physicists, you know, with string theory and whatnot, were like, oh, we have a use for the 11th dimension. When it comes to trying to figure out whether or not there is like uh, a non-material aspect to this. As soon as I stepped out of academia, I realized that individuals need to be responsible for our actions and we need to investigate our own psyche. And I started to look 
into myself and I realized this isn't what I want. I don't necessarily need to just produce more science and, and further these particular aspects and make sure that um, cardiac patients get to live 0.1 year longer on average um, and that there are different aspects to the human experience. Uh, and I need to have a role in communicating with people and that by this point, I'd already um, been involved in psychedelics. And I realized that at some point in my life, uh, I didn't know if it was going to be in the near future or the long term, um, I do plan on uh, using my sacrament and, and spreading it. Um, and uh, I can't divulge too much in that aspect, uh, but as legalization does begin to pick up, I actually have a, a, a couple tricks and tools in mind on how to uh, improve that experience, particularly for psilocybin. Um, I'm gonna keep that one close to the chest, no offense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, giving back to mathematics, right? St. Augustine says, he, he condemns math, mathematicians in, in a way that they're sorcerers and that they have access to arcane knowledge to manipulate reality. If you had listened, those of you viewers who listened to the last two podcasts, we talked about magic as the understanding of cause in order to create the realm of effects. Um, but I also wanted to bring this to a more basic or fundamental uh, questioning um, regarding materialism or materiality, which is that where, I guess I would ask you in thinking about this, it, do you think there's something within material reality alone that can exist eternally or generate eternally materiality alone? I feel like the the idea of that thought or the, that thought itself is, is what gave me the ability to look outside of materiality. It's because um, I, uh, I think that physics is the game and mathematics is the language with which we understand it. And I began to realize that mathematics exists independent of physical reality. Um, now, we count in a system. Are you familiar with the bases in mathematics? Like, there's the, Yeah, 10 base, base 10, base so, 3. So why do we use base 10? I don't know. Was it the you Greeks? You have 10 fingers. Oh, okay. But there's been lots of other bases throughout history. There, there, there are. But the reason we use 10, it's so convenient, is because we adapted our symbology in, in mathematics. Like, mm -hmm. there's 1 through 10. And then you wrap around as like there's zero for the, mm -hmm. for the tenth digit. The the reason for that is you could just have symbols so that it goes one to eleven or one to twelve. And I believe the Babylonians had sixty. And there's um, like thirteen base and sixty base right, and all these other weird stuff. Yeah. Almost the only reason we use base ten is because we have ten fingers. And mathematics exists independent of this, and you can apply it in multiple bases. And as, as we try to examine math. Um, outside of what we can generate in the physical realm, it is, as I said with the with the example of string theory and physics, is physicists always find their way to claw it back into reality. And I think math does exist independent of reality, essentially. Do you think mathematics precedes material reality? Oh, absolutely. Well, so you're basically a Platonist when it comes to mathematics. Because uh, Plato says that the world of what we interact with empirically is produced by mathematical relations. So I I, I would say that Mathematics has an axiomatic structure. And I think that the axioms that we choose, I mean, it's hard to say we choose them because they're relatively rigid. But the reason we choose the axioms is, is the same thing as saying this is the reality that we live in. The axioms that we choose are determined by the reality that we live in. And I don't understand how to conceptualize another reality, but I think they would just simply have different axioms, but the rules of the game would be the same. You're still playing a tabletop game. You just change the rules, be it D&D, &D, Warhammer 40K or whatever. So I guess you're in a state where, do you, do you, I guess insofar you think mathematics precedes material reality. Do you think that mathematics itself is produced by something? Like what makes the laws of mathematical realities? Or is it just self-sufficient? Okay, so there, okay. <laughs> I, I mean, if there, if there is God, he is the writer of math. 
would you say that God determines not necessarily everything that happens and just the rules of the game? Or would you say that God determines everything that happens? I would say the latter. Um, the fathers will make a distinction in so far that there are modes of God's will, which is direct or um, indirect will. So I think that comes into play if you want to do like theological games, but in, not to say I'm a Calvinist or anything, but in the sense that- I might be. <laughs> in the sense- <laughs> In the sense that all things are done out of either God's will or at the very least God's permissive will, right? I think that's what St. John of Damascus will call it. Uh, yeah. And, and, and so far that even evil, which I, I say doesn't actually even exist, right? If you listen to the last few podcasts, but even, even evil or evil things or tragic things, things that um, happen in history and time that repulse us and repulse different people differently. Let's just say that as Nietzsche says, what is happiness? The feeling that power is growing, that resistance is overcome. Um, so evil, when resistance is not growing, or, or, or when power is not growing and when you're not overcoming resistance, maybe. Um, all this is, is itself still substantially relying on the energies of God. Um, so there isn't any way to actually escape out of God, right? So then I would say that God and math are two different ways to describe a very similar coin. Right, I, I, I have to be careful. I, I don't disagree with you. I would just be careful because I don't want to go in this total, not that I think Spinoza actually says this, but let's say what a, the common interpretation of Spinoza is. I don't want to go on this Spinozist mere pantheism route um, that God is just what's in between the mathematical reality. Um, in a certain sense, in a very platonic sense, right? To me, God transcends mathematical reality even transcends logic and reason and everything. Uh, and that there's no name we can actually give to God that doesn't actually negate him. At the same time, math is, uh, to use the Neoplatonic term, a effulgence of God's hyper-reality um, that ends up, it's not that God so much intentionally tries to create rational um, aspects that then generate reality as God's very essence, cathartically, agopically, erotically, uh, effulges, sprout, sprouts out uh, mathematical relations that then sprout out uh, miniatures of that divine uh, equation uh, of, of those figures and, and fractions that then create what we see in the everyday reality. So if, if I am envisioning this, I would say that there, there is, God, I, I absolutely lack the language to it, but, but then math is the, the wreath or the barrier around material reality separating us from this and the divine. And that is a, it is an offspring or offshoot of it. And the rules that which describe that can happen in the material world are already predicted in mathematics. So um, I, I don't know, are you familiar with, uh, have you heard uh, the culture, not the culture, I do love the culture. Um, have you read uh, Ian Banks at all? He's a sci-fi author. Uh, read some things by Ian Banks, um, and, and I think we'll be better friends. Uh, but have you read uh, The Foundation by Asimov or any of those? No, I haven't. Oh, Dios mio. Um, Asimov has um, th this thing, uh, almost a deus ex machina in the first few books called Psychohistory, um, which is is very nebulous and poorly described, but, but some being a... a, a a savior-like individual at the collapse of galactic civilization um, creates this tool, psychohistory, which is a form of mathematically informed psychoanalysis, but on a grand sociological scale and predicts the downfall of man. And this individual then realizes that he needs to act as a particular savior. And in order to 
preserve some degree of humanity and civilization, um, which he sees as a good thing for some godforsaken reason. Uh, he starts civilization at the very edge of the world with some degree of information on how to um, survive and, and thrive, and then predicts what will happen in, in the local future of that, um, of that realm. And basically, to me, psychohistory is like the, the peak of mathematics in that it does describe, um, somehow it gives you the, the, the rules of the game. Because I, I think if, you, if we could just expand mathematics, we discover that we can uh, do more within our physical realm. Because you know, humans circa 1800 didn't have access to, to nuclear technologies. That doesn't mean it didn't exist, but we didn't have any of the tools to understand it. And then as soon as humans developed the, the mathematical ability or the knowledge of nuclear tools, uh, they suddenly arose. I, I think it was the work of um, Radium, uh, the really cool girl, Madame Curie, who did the experiments that verified that Einstein's E equals MC squared which is not correct, d squared equals m squared c to the fourth plus p squared c squared. But basically, as soon as we have the knowledge of something in, in mathematical terms, we very quickly manifest in reality. Now, could you say that as soon as we you know, take the Promethean mathematics that we end up with, we, we have this great idea and it's not at all material whatsoever, and then we can represent it in the real world, I would say that the math exists independent of this world. Humans can die. Everything is over. There's no ability to think. There is no um, logical rationality. There could be no more life in the universe, and math still exists. Um, because for me, I was discussing, oh, man, I totally forgot what it is. But there's a, there's a thought experiment where there's a very beautiful planet. There's an ugly planet, and you have to choose which one you destroy. Which one do you destroy? Uh, the ugly one. Why? Because I hate ugly things. Well, exactly. Do you, uh, do, what does that thought experiment represent? I totally forgot. It's, um, oh, I totally forgot. Uh, I th it's not Hegel. Is it basically, uh, like, what does it mean to be uh, beautiful? Like, uh, the, the absolute, uh, is it objective or is it subjective? It could be either. Depends on who you're asking. I believe in objective beauty. Yeah. To, to take that to the very end, um, I also as well. I don't know where that's supposed to tie. I, yeah, I would say I say beauty is kind of like the divine in so far it's subjective, but the way it relates individually is subjective. But there are objective realities that override. Like despite how malformed your aesthetic opinions might be, strip malls are objectively wrong. They're ethically wrong. In every capacity. And any nation that builds them should be destroyed. Well, why are they ethically wrong? Because they create a degenerate approach to reality. They create degenerate psychologies. They create harm. They actually are torture. Bad aesthetics is torture. Bad architecture is torture. It should be against the Geneva Convention. It should be, it should be a crime to build buildings that are ugly. And here we see how short-sighted he is. Because what they do is that they create a certain amount of space that is now already paved and creates the uh, nexus or the space where we now have the ability to have informed communities where you do have grocery stores immediately adjacent to townhomes uh, and livable cities. Because I think that these towns or these, uh, these strip malls will now serve as places where we can actually 
have livable communities where you have your dentist office, maybe a doctor's office, all the stores you need within walking distance. Because what I think really needs to die is the idea of these suburbs and car culture where everyone needs to have a 15 minute drive to a grocery store when in reality, mm -hmm. we should be able to live near groups of people that we want to live near, live near walking distance to a school and access to these resources. And we have spaces specifically cleared out that are going to fail economically within the next 20 years that we can now um, use as the ability to generate these communities. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm just saying, my point being that you can make those communities without ugly aesthetics. Well, someone had to suffer, yeah. I, I believe. <laughs> uh, and it was us. Boomers and us, yeah. All right, so that brings us to the end of the 50-minute hour. Part Any two. Part two. Any closing remarks? Set and setting are extremely important. Please know what you're getting into. Um, don't just open your mouth and have someone drop something in your mouth and say good luck. Uh, always do things in a safe environment with individuals you trust. Um, when life gives you Pharmacon, make Pharmacon aid. Dare to resist drugs, kids. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>